Hi, my name is Darren Brenner. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery in the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. I am the Irene D. Pritzker Research Scholar at Northwestern, and I run our Neurogastromotility, Functional Bowel, GI Physiology Lab, and Integrated Bowel Dysfunction Programs. I'm here today to talk a little bit about IBSD, or Irritable Bowel Syndrome with Diarrhea, bringing you up to date with some of the current advances we have for treating this disorder, as well as some new data that we recently published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. IBSD is, is a common disorder. And when we think about irritable bowel syndrome, it affects approximately 10 to 15% of the world's population, and diarrhea impacts probably a half to two-thirds of these individuals. When we look at irritable bowel syndrome, it's something that's evolved over time. Historically, the medications we had, you could treat a predominant symptom. So if you had abdominal pain or discomfort, we treat that. If you had constipation, we treat it with a laxative. If you had a diarrhea like we were talking about today, we treat with an anti-diarrheal. And we're trying to treat the global symptom profile, the abdominal pain discomfort and the changes in frequency and texture of stools, or what I like to call the butt and gut symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea because we can do that. We now have multiple medications, multiple complementary alternative therapies, and uh, multiple FDA-approved prescriptions that can get both the abdominal and bowel symptoms that are related to this disorder. The future of irritable bowel, however, would be targeting the underlying pathogenic or etiologic mechanisms of the disorder, meaning that we've elucidated multiple different causes of irritable bowel syndrome symptoms as we start to elucidate and better define diagnostic mechanisms or ways to identify the causes, then we're going to be better treating these disorders. But for right now, our, our major goal is to treat the global symptom profile. Belief is what I like to call an if you can't beat them, join them type of study. And it was something that was necessary, but takes us a little bit back in time. I know a lot of my colleagues, when they see a patient with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, they'll start with an over-the-counter therapy like loperamide. And loperamide is a very good drug for diarrhea, but not the greatest drug for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. Because remember, the sine qua non of irritable bowel is abdominal pain or discomfort. And in the clinical trials assessing loperamide for treating irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, it improves stool frequency, it improves stool texture, but it does not improve abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating, or like I said earlier, the gut symptoms of IBS. Therefore, multiple societies have now recommended against the use of loperamide for treating irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. There were two phase three double-blind placebo-controlled studies that were published by my friend Tony Lembo from Harvard in the New England Journal a few years ago that looked at using elixatiline, which is a mu-kappa opiate receptor agonist, delta receptor antagonist that works in the periphery of the GI tract for improving global IBSD symptoms. And this was shown to be extremely effective compared to placebo with a number needed to treat of approximately eight to 10. A lot of the patients in these original trials had tried loperamide, and many of these individuals said that they had tried loperamide and it had failed. They went back and they looked at this population in terms of those who received alexadiline or placebo. Patients who received alexadiline did significantly better than the placebo cohort. The problem is this was a retrospective post hoc analysis, and the studies were not powered to detect these differences. So the purpose for relief was to perform a double-blind, randomized, multi-center international trial assessing the efficacy of alexadiline versus placebo in patients who subjectively endorsed that they had tried loperamide and failed it in the past 12 months. And that was the goal of the study, to look at this population of patients who came into our offices and said, I tried the over-the-counter and it didn't work. Will this potential therapeutic work for me? Now, again, 
this trial was run as a failure study, i.e. patients had to fail lopiramide, but from my perspective as a uh, member of the American College of Gastroenterology and currently working on the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines for irritable bowel syndrome, my recommendation is not to use loperamide first line anyway. So this study was designed and powered to detect this difference. We enrolled 346 individuals who were randomized to a standard FDA-approved dose of alexadiline, 100 milligrams twice a day, or placebo, for two weeks. The primary endpoint in this trial was a variation on the FDA's responder endpoint. The FDA says to be considered a responder, you have to have a 30% reduction in your pain compared to your baseline pain scores and normalization of your stool texture on the same day for 50% of the trial days. But we upped the ante a little bit. Instead of doing the 30% threshold, we looked at a 40% reduction in pain and normalization of stool texture on the same day for 50% of days. The patients that enrolled in this trial, average age was about 44 years old, two-thirds were women, and about 82% were Caucasian. And the enrollees in the child had irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea symptoms for about 10 years. So this is very similar to what we see across the board for people enrolling in IBS studies. Overall, we saw a significant improvement in favor of alexadiline in terms of our responder endpoint compared to placebo, with a delta of about 12% and a number needed to treat of eight. When we broke down the primary endpoint, and we looked at patients who met the 40% reduction in pain for 50% of days separately and normalization of stool texture for 50% of days separately, we saw very similar responses in the 11.2 to 12.6 range, again, with numbers needed to treat of eight. We also obviously look at adverse event and safety profiles. These were really no different than what we saw in the initial clinical trials, but there's an important caveat for our audience to be aware of. As they may be aware, when alexadiline was first brought to market, we said that if patients didn't have their gallbladders, they should start taking 75 milligrams twice a day. However, we saw in post-marketing analyses that people developed a higher rate of pancreatitis or sphincter body dysfunction. And now the drug is contraindicated in anybody who does not have the gallbladder. In our trial, we did not enroll anybody who was post-cholecystectomy and there was no evidence of sphincter body dysfunction or pancreatitis. So the take-home point from all of this is alexadiline is a very good drug for treating IBSD in general but also for patients who have failed loperamide. The drug is safe, it's effective, and it works very quickly, usually seeing a clinical response within the first couple of weeks. With IBSD, we're all aware that there are multiple therapeutic interventions. We have dietary interventions, we have behavioral interventions, we have pharmaceutical interventions, and a lot of this is gonna come down to trial and error. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have ways to accurately diagnose the underlying pathogenic mechanisms for all the etiologies that cause IVSD symptoms. So until then, we want to treat the global symptom profile. So a lot of that is discussion with your patients. We know, and we've shown over and over again, that if we allow our patients to interact with us in terms of how they choose their management, the outcomes will be better. If you're looking along the pharmaceutical route of treatment, then again, there are a few FDA-approved therapies for this, and alexadiline should be potentially a first-line agent for your patients. It has minimal systemic penetration. Again, it gets global symptoms, which is what we want to treat in 2019 with a very good symptom and safety profile. Thank you very much for your participation in this podcast this afternoon. I hope that you were able to find some informative information and advice for treating patients with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. As an academic physician, if you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to contact me at Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N, hyphen Brenner, B-R-E-N-N-E-R, at northwestern.edu. Again, thank you very much for your participation.